Greetings from Long Island, where every highway is a sunrise. It's time for Dave's Gone By, an hour of comedy, talk, and music brought to you by Total Theater, with your host, Dave Lefkowitz. You've never heard anything like it, so sit back, relax, squeal if you must. Here's the host of Dave's Gone By, Dave! Tropical hot dog night! Like two flamingos in a fruit bite. There goes the day Welcome, everybody, on this March 5th, 2006, to the 162nd episode of Dave's Gone By. It's talk, it's comedy, it's ramblings and reminiscences. It's Sunday nights at 11, with best of episodes airing on the web Thursdays at 8 and 11. Both the Sunday show and the Thursday repeats are listenable everywhere at my website, davesgoneby.org. Remember, that's Dave with a V. Dave's gone by, because that's my name. Do wear it out, because I'm Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, humorist, journalist, and a host of Dave's Gone By, which has mixed smart talk, silly talk, special talk, and music since October 2002. Now, tonight's episode really gives you a typical sense of where the show is at. First of all, although I barely watched the Olympics, although I couldn't have cared less whether the American hockey team beat Finland or Finland beat them, or if they all just went to a diner and threw pucks at each other. I haven't watched downhill skiing since ABC's Wide World of Sports, and for all the drama that television tried to build up about women's ice skating, if I want to see nubile 20-year-old girls twisting and gyrating, I want to see them do it naked under each other. You know what I'm saying? So, I gave a pass to 95% of the Olympics. Didn't watch, didn't care. Didn't bother with the Cirque du So Pointless opening and closing ceremonies. I didn't root. I didn't make it appointment television. Except, there was one event that I and apparently thousands of people like me actually watched with bemused fascination and even a bit of merriment. Maybe because it was the only sport NBC showed in the morning when there's nothing else to do but watch TV while adjusting your underpants. Don't knock the logic. It's the same reason people watch Wimbledon. By the time you're actually awake, you've already been watching the sport for 40 minutes. But no, this isn't about tennis. Tonight, we're considering the grand and glorious activity called curling. A sport so exciting, observers have called it chess on ice. But hey, hey, people have been playing variations of curling since the late 1500s, when Scotsmen would send rocks scuttling down frozen rivers. Now, it's been an official Olympic sport since 1988, and by gosh, go figure, it became one of the few controversy-free purely enjoyable competitions in Turin last week. So, I have my own thoughts on the sudden curling surge. Did you know in 2001, curling was named the official sport of Saskatchewan? (laughs) Did you know it's impossible to say that without smiling foolishly? Any sport that makes you smile just thinking about it is worth talking about. 
So I'll be curling up to curling on tonight's Dave Goes Off segment. On a more somber note, towards the end of the show will be Dave Remembers, dedicated to the memories and legacies of Don Knotts, Darren McGavin, and Dennis Weaver. Amazing how they all went one after another, and since they all contributed to America's modern entertainment and culture, it's only right to bid them a fond farewell. And, on an even heavier note, Rabbi Saul Solomon will be here tonight. Purim is a week away, but he's not here to talk about that. The rabbi is steaming mad, livid, about a Torah, a holy book, that was stolen from his synagogue, Temple Sons of Bitches, in Great Neck, New York. So he is going to make an on-air appeal to get that Torah back. And I would imagine he'll have a few choice things to say to the burglars who did the deed. Aren't you glad you tuned in? That's all tonight on Dave's Gone By. Rated DGB 13 for some content and language that's FCC permissible, but perhaps child corruptible. Sponsoring this and every episode of Dave's Gone By are Hewlett Minuteman Press Copy Shop, Performing Arts Insider Theater Magazine, and MortgagesRock.com. You, yes, you can be a real estate broker. If you know people who need loans to, re- to refinance their homes or get small business funds or money for college tuition, MortgagesRock.com will teach you to help them. The more you learn, the more commission you earn. And MortgagesRock.com isn't just a website. It's a full-service, fully-licensed brokerage firm with a busy office in the heart of the South Shore. So, What are you waiting for? Surf that mouse to MortgagesRock.com, where making money never sounded so good. Thanks for tuning in tonight. We've got the rabbi. We've got Limpet, McLeod, Kolchak, and Curling on Dave's Gone By, which gets underway just 60 seconds from now. And Dave Lefkowitz is here for the play-by-play. The play-by-play-by-play by by Dave in his book of plays, Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World. Comedies, satirical, silly, sad, and strange, all collected in a great-looking book. Just $20 hardcover, $12 soft. Email davesgoneby at aol.com or visit davesgoneby.org for marriage, babies, and the end of the world. Da-da-da-da-da-da! Play Dave! What's playing on Broadway? I'll tell you what's playing on Broadway, and I'll do it by checking Performing Arts Insider. Off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, off-off-off-Broadway. You keep adding offs, they'll keep adding listings. Who's in the cast? What's it about? Why is it special? Performing Arts Insider is Broadway the best way. 516-295-1511. 516-295-1511. Or see PerformingArtsInsider.com. Dave goes off, Dave goes off, Dave goes off, Dave goes off. Yes, it's Dave goes off on Dave's Gone By, off on a rant, off on, well, not so much a rampage. Usually I just kind of talk a little bit about something that's on my mind or some events or something that's tickling my ribs about uh, whatever's out there this week. You knew that I could not let a show pass or let the Olympics pass without mentioning and giving great 
credit and kudos to the uh, U.S. Olympic curling team, which took home a bronze medal. They beat uh, Sweden in a, a really, really exciting match that they aired uh, one morning from about 6 till 9 a.m., which is pretty much the only reason anybody had watched it. That's what I wanted to talk about tonight, curling. And I know all pundits and commentators do this every Winter Olympics because they get out there and then there's all these like heavy-duty sports like skiing and downhill and luge and the ice skating stuff. But then there's this other sport where it's just a bunch of people in, you know, sticky and, and uh, flattering little wetsuits, and they're on ice, but they're not playing hockey. They're just taking this ple- plasticine plexiglass watermelon with a handle, plumping it down on the ice, getting behind it, giving it a push, sending it slowly careening down the ice alley towards these concentric circles that are kind of like uh, a shuffleboard, hopscotch, dartboard kind of mix. And to get from one end of that ice alley to the other, in between, you also have, most importantly, the two other teammates who stand in front of it with little brooms and sweep. I know I'm not the only one. I know I'm not... I'm far from the only commentator over the past few decades to to look at this sport and wonder how it became a sport. I mean, think of some of the things that they really do in the Olympics, okay? There's one sport that not only involves skiing with these amazing runs and trying to hit these flagpoles and come down and, and get these world record times. There's also the skeet thing. Can you believe that there's actually a sport where these folks come down skiing and then they hold rifles and shoot at things and then keep skiing and stuff? I mean, that's okay. It's like Olympiad or what we call the triathlon and the decathlon stuff that they do in the Summer Olympics. That's a sport. That's something I wouldn't even try or attempt. Now, I'm a coward and all that, so I've never even tried skiing. But there's other sports that, that I will or would have made an attempt to do. I don't know if there's an Olympic baseball team. I don't think there is. But okay, I played softball. And there's Olympic bowling, I believe, I assume. And, and bowling is cool because, okay, it's also similar. You're sending this object down a long lane. But then you have the skill of knocking down those pins and also the thrill that comes of it. You know, you just send that ball down and you try to blast those pins to hell, and if you miss one, then on that spare, you try and get that just right to knock it off. There's this great sense of satisfaction if you do, and that anguish if you don't. Whereas in curling, you sort of send that thing, that curl, that turn thing, down the alley, and what's interesting is they always compliment the person who's making that shot, who's turning that, that curl thing in. I'm wondering about that because if they were just sending it down and trying to get into that center ring or or within that hot spot ring area, or if they sent it down and knocked the other team's uh, little marker out of place and took its place, okay. But even if the person doesn't send it down very well or in the right direction, that's what the sweepers are for. 
How can they go compliment the sweepers? Because they're the ones who are really paving the way. I guess they're creating sort of something over the ice for it to travel on. And the faster they sweep, the faster it goes in, in the directionality and stuff. Still, there's a difference between that and skiing down a hill, picking up a rifle, and bang. I always, I always thought that would be... They could combine that with some other sports, too. Like, maybe the, all these ice skaters who keep falling down. I think that would be a whole heck of a lot more interesting if these ice skaters had to do these triple and double flips and these lutzes and these splits and then come on up, grab a carbine, and start firing at some target. And then the cameras would pan to all the people in the stands who are, like, ducking and running from the exits because if they're spinning and shooting at the same time, that could get really interesting, you know? But getting back to curling, which is now becoming in a certain manner of speaking, popular. Why? Because my NBC is covering the Olympics, and they want to do at least some stuff live. Well, it happens to me. Early in the morning, everybody's getting ready for work. They're putting on the TV, and the other channels are doing the same news. And if there's no really big, important news story, then they'll flip over to the Olympics, which they may not have watched in prime time. I know ratings are down. And America did not do very well. I think we were beaten by Germany in overall medals. And our hockey team was a big bust. And Bowie Miller was a moron. And you had, who else? I mean, Sasha Cohen was kind of exciting for a while. And then the whole thing with Michelle Kwong. It was just not a terribly exciting Olympics if you cared for to root for a particular country, namely ours. And people, I, I never cared about the Olympics to begin with. The only time I really got into it was a marvelous documentary made years ago by Bud Greenspan, uh, probably about 25 years ago, that they showed on public television called The Olympiad. And that was really, I mean, he turned that into exciting drama. But then again, he had all these different Olympics to work with and these people's stories. And it wasn't this typical two-minute, well, this one came from adversity, and this one just got married, and this one just had a baby. No, this was real kind of gripping, in-your-face drama that, that Greenspan did. And I, I hope they bring that back to TV or, or release that on DVD if they haven't. Anyway, so not into the Winter Olympics, but hey, it was on. And I didn't care to see the skating. I didn't care about the skiing. I didn't care about the hockey, for sure. But suddenly... There you are, 7.30 in the morning, watching Sweden, uh, the women, which, if it was men, I admit, they showed the men a day later, but I don't think I would have been that into it, but we have these kind of attractive Swedish women um, <laughs> in these little outfits, pushing the thing down and, and doing their sweeping. Well, there is a chauvinist element there that I, perhaps appeals to me, and, and a couple of the American girls were cute, too, and the Americans were winning. They were really taking it to Sweden. It wasn't even close. But the thing that I found most interesting and funny about the sport, at least Olympic style, is, all right, you've got the woman, she um, pushes the thing forward, and, and it also reminded me of the way I used to bowl when I was a kid, because it was a little, little pipsqueak of a kid, and I have the ball, which was kind of heavy, and instead of throwing it the proper way, of swinging your arm back, coming forward, taking the knee down, and then having the ball just gently connect with the alley as it rolls forward... I would just run up to the line, the, the foul line of the uh, alley, flump down to my stomach, and push the ball forward in front of me. 
And it was, it was quite effective. I, I got quite a few strikes doing that. Of course, technically, I was over the line because when I went flop across the foul line, half my body was across the foul line. But it was kind of neat, and I think my dad got a kick out of seeing that. So here, someone's actually getting paid or, or getting medals to do that in Olympic fashion on the ice. They, they go for it. They flump down and give a push, and this thing goes... I wouldn't say hurtling, it's more like gently locomoting its way down the ice. And then you've got the sweepers come out, and they sweep very, very fast. And the first few times, not just the first time, but the first five or six or ten times you watch that, it's just hysterical. It's just these people sweeping in front of a thing, and you're wondering, how can this be a sport? But the thing that, that just drove me delirious was the fact that the team would be screaming, and the, the leader, the, the person who sent the thing down, would be going, ah! Especially the Swedish people. They were going nuts. They were like, rah! Yeah! Ah! And, and what could they possibly have been saying besides sweep? What would there be to say? There's nothing else that they're doing. There's nothing else involved. It's just either sweep or stop sweeping. Maybe they, maybe they say, okay, go a little left, Go a little right. Maybe I missed that, um, you know, that nuance. But all of a sudden, rah, rah, and I and I also understand that um, in baseball, when people understand, let's say a guy's on first base and, and the batter comes up and he hits a long single, what do you do? Everybody stands up and goes, run, run. And if you think of that logically, what else is the guy on first going to do? But on a basic thing, when you know that they're going to run, you still are up there, really excited and chanting, run, 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 as if what? As if they're going to stop in the middle and order something from eBay, as if they're going to stop and, and say, you know, I could get a haircut right now, but it would take really too long for me to get from first to third, especially if I got the shave in between. No, they're going to they're going to run. That's exactly what they're meant to do. So, okay, if you've got this whole team screaming, sweep, sweep, they're sweeping. That's the sport. That's what it is. And, of course, there is strategy, and there is some skill. I mean, everyone who's gone bowling more than once or twice has probably gotten a strike or two. But try and get those strikes so that you're always getting 220s, 240s, the occasional 300 game, and there is a world of difference. So perhaps when we see curling on TV, we're not, in, we're not expecting or realizing what goes into it, because it looks simple. Push the thing, sweep in front of it. Push the thing, sweep in front of it, which is easy to a point, and that then there's that other point where it takes years to get it right. But I'm not sure. I think... Um, one commentator said it best, or one pundit, I should say, on one of the talk shows, said that the thing about curling is we see those American girls in the winner's circle and, and the Swedish team up there getting their medals, and we watch them and we think, you know, if, we, if I just did this for half a year, I could be in that winner's circle too on this sport. You know, and I think that that may be the underlying appeal of curling, but I'd like to try it. I wish I knew where, you know, somewhere out on the island or, or in Woolman Rink in Manhattan. I still think curling was invented by frustrated women, housewives, who never saw their husbands do one lick of housework, and they thought to themselves, hmm, 
how do I fool them? I mean, there's nothing you can really do with a vacuum cleaner and, you know, getting them to, to wash down a window or something. There's no sport in that. But if I can think of a sport that will get men to push a broom back and forth really, really fast, boy, wouldn't that be something. And you know what? It is. Back after this. So, you don't have satellite radio, you don't have an iPod or a hundred music channels on your cable? Doesn't matter! Live365.com has dozens of radio stations and all sorts of formats absolutely free. And one station, DFSX Radio, plays vintage episodes of Dave's Gone By every Thursday night at 8 and 11 Eastern. I've even put their link on davesgoneby.org, so just click to hear music and talk and me free on DFSX. Shalom, goddammit! This is Rabbi Saul Solomon of Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. How are you tonight? Are you all safe at home, sitting on your comfy Levitt's couch, gnashing on potato chips and macaroons, picking lint out of your puppets? Maybe you're reading a nice bestseller about people stopping each other. Are you helping the kids with a science project that's due in the morning, only they just told you about it three hours ago? Or are you getting ready for the wonderful holiday of Purim, where for 24 hours you get to escape the dreary routine and shackles of your existence? Go ahead, enjoy the last hours of your Sunday. Take a little snooze, maybe call an old friend who had a relative die. It's no skin off my tuchus, right? Just because you can wallow in domestic bliss, numbing your brains with creature comforts, while I'm stuck in goddamn hell? Don't give it another thought. Don't worry yourselves with my problems. Listen to your iPods, play your Xboxes, drink a light beer, watch priests in football. Don't even think about a little thing completely unimportant. The fact that the world as we know it is slowly but surely being flushed down the toilet of death. All right, maybe that's a little strong. No, no, it's not. This society is being sucked into a vortex of destruction that makes Auschwitz look like Kmart. I should explain that I am a tiny bit uh, angry. And I'm not talking about my usual anger. I'm a Jew with 19 children, with a shrew of a wife, a bitchy congregation, and a bank account that looks like Enron's been through it. So, when you hear me screaming and ranting and calling people bastards, that's not really angry. That's just a simmering undercurrent of happy rage. Starts the day you get circumcised, and it doesn't abate until the day they shovel you into Baron Hirsch overlooking the parkway. On the whole, though... I'd say I'm a very pleasant person. Easygoing, carefree, empathetic even. If I were a woman, you know what would be squirting out of my boobs? The milk of human kindness, that's what! 
I'm a rabbi, goddammit. People turn to me for guidance, consolation, beggar seats on Yom Kippur. They know that deep down, I am all about love, about nurturing, about being optimistic about the human race, even if that means temporarily forgetting that most human beings are filthy, lying sons of bitches who aren't even worth chopping up and turning into manure because they just poison any crop they were sprinkled over. And that goes double, double! For the miscreants, the dirtbags, the vermin, the pig stoppers who broke into the temple last weekend and stole a Torah. You hear me right, people. Thievery and evil have reared their ugly kepis at temple sons of bitches. A person, or persons, unknown, broke in through a rear door, smashed a glass display case, taking mezuzahs, menorahs, silver yards, candle snuffers. They left the Mandy Patinkin CD collection because, presumably, even the lowest wretch of the earth has more taste than to listen to Mandy Patinkin. But did they stop there? Did these animals, these lowlifes, these digesters of excrement, did they stop with a few trinkets? Did they say to themselves, perhaps in Spanish or the language of the hood, Ah, uh, we have a few goodies, some tchotchkes to sell on eBay. Maybe we can melt the silver down and buy our mothers some good crack for once. No, the gift display wasn't enough for these punks. They went into the sanctuary. The sanctuary! God damn it, the son of a bitching hell! These criminals knew what they were looking for because they went right to the ark. Right to the place where we keep the Torahs, the holy scrolls containing the word of God. These scrolls are written out letter by letter, word by word, by old experienced men. Men who have done this so long, they not only have carpal tunnel syndrome, they have Holland tunnel syndrome, goddammit. One Torah scroll takes months, months to write out with a feather quill and ink. Screw kinkos, this is the real deal. If the man copying a Torah makes one mistake on a letter, one teeny oops, he writes a vov instead of a yud, he starts writing Joseph instead of Joshua, he cannot correct that. There's no eraser on the ass of a pigeon. There's no such thing as whiteout for deerskin. The poor bastard has to discard the whole section and start over. You think postal workers are tanks? You should see these guys. You want to drive a Torah copier to homicide? Just go up behind him and pop a bag. He's going to shove that quill all the way up places you didn't even know you had. That is why Torahs are worth thousands and thousands of dollars. You cannot buy one at Home Depot. You cannot stock up on safer Torahs at Costco. Yet. Anyway, it's not just the Torah itself that's so valuable. We cover the Torah scrolls with ornaments. It has a crown on top, a special cover, a silver breastplate. This thing is so protected. If you sent it out on a horse in the Middle Ages, even Lancelot couldn't pierce it. But we decorate the Torah 
We venerate it because it is the word of Hashem. The laws and histories and myths we live by as a Jewish people. So, for a couple of goons to steal it, stupid kids who should have had their throats cut the second they tasted solid food, for these blood clots to steal something as precious as a Torah, to vandalize a house of worship, even one as pathetic and poorly decorated as temple sons of bitches, is an offense against God and man. Not to mention me, who's stuck in between. What are they going to do with a stolen Torah? That's what I don't understand. It's not like Paco can give it to his girlfriend for her birthday. He cannot take her out to a special dinner at their favorite restaurant, White Castle, and say, Oh, baby, I want you to know you're the only girl, sorry, ho, that I want in my life right now. So, I got you a gift that shows you just how much you mean to me. No, I, I didn't have time to wrap it. Oh, Paco, what is it, a necklace? No, earrings? No, a gift certificate to the abortion clinic? You know, those always come in so handy. No, no, my baby bitch. I got you something so much nicer. Look! He opens his stolen Adidas carrying bag, and there's a 50-year-old Ashkenazic Torah in it. Oh, won't his girl be the envy of all her friends? Maybe she can wear it around her neck, like that Schwarzer from Public Enemy with a clock around his head. Look, she tells her friends, the fur lining keeps me warm in the winter, and it opens up so I can wrap it around like a poncho. Well, guess what, Miss Chooch? A Torah is the most precious thing in the world, but as a Valentine's Day gift, it's got nothing on a box of Godivas. So what are the thieves really doing with it? There's no such thing as a chop shop for old Torahs. Jamal can't go around to the local garage and say, Hey, I just jacked this from the shul on Sussex Road. What can I get for it? The owner wouldn't tell him, Well, if it were in better condition, or if I didn't have the fingerprints all over it. But as it is, and Jamal says, Hey, look, if you don't want it, I'm sure Tyrone can come up with some bling for it. And then the guy says, Wait, wait, what's your hurry? I got another toilet in the back that needs a Leviticus. I mean, it does not happen that way. The only people in the world who would be interested in a Torah would be a bunch of Jews in a synagogue. And the idea of buying a contraband Torah would be such anathema. They would sooner pray to a cross, Chasvich than to a stolen scroll. That is why this crime, this unspeakable act that I'm speaking about, that's why this is pure evil. There is no altruistic side to this. Nobody's robbing Peter to pay Paul. They're robbing Moish to pay Malcolm, goddammit. These Robin hoodlums are stealing from the lower middle class to give to the upper lower class. They should call it affirmative auction. Whoever did this, I just have one thing to say. Except I'll say it in several different ways. Please give back our Torah. Please. It doesn't belong to you. Both literally and in the spiritual sense. Keep the mezuzahs. Keep the tchotchkes. Come, take the Mandy Patinkin CDs, please. We'll even throw in a couple of oil paintings by Yaakov Agam. Limited edition, signed, the paint isn't even dry. 
And if you want jewelry, we've got widows in the congregation that have shoeboxes full of shiny crap that their husbands gave them. You can have it. Think of it as a down payment on the cigarettes you'll need to buy in prison. Just bring back the holy book. No questions asked. You can leave it on the steps by the back door. Ring the bell and run. I promise we'll give you a head start before we begin shooting. This is the only way to redeem yourselves. I'm assuming you're Catholic, or Protestant, or Muslim, or one of those other wastes of time. Makes me long ever mind, but even these half-assed religions are pretty smart about confession and restitution. What's one little Torah to you against saving your soul for all eternity, huh? What's a couple of thousand dollars compared to spending eternity with those seventy virgins? Or St. Peter giving you a soul kiss when you reach the pearly gates? If you just return the Torah you've taken, I'll forgive. Well, I won't forgive, but I'll be slightly less inclined to ask Hashem to gouge your eyes out with a shank bone. If you do not give back this priceless item you have stolen, here is what I wish for you. May Hurricane Katrina come back at double strength, but only in your apartment. May boils grow on the underside of your tongue. May festering canker sores cover the top of your tongue. And may the tip of your tongue be superglued to a pit bull's nose. May Jesus Christ and all his evil henchmen come back to earth just to single you out in front of all humanity, punch you in the face, and call you an a-hole. In the year 2012, may the American military reopen Abu Hirab, using all new, more subtle, and more effective torture techniques, which they spent the last five years practicing on you. May gangrene infect your foot so badly you won't even notice the cancer. May you be blessed with a fine, strong, handsome son, and may his prison name be Rochelle. May you have three beautiful daughters, and may they grow up to date Robert Blake, Phil Spector, and O.J. Simpson. May you have many children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and may those great-grandchildren all get AIDS and spend their remaining years traveling around the world fighting the rest of the family. May your sister be the star of a pornographic snuff film, directed by your father. May people laugh at your children behind their backs, but cringe in horror at their faces. May the truck that kills your mother on the highway drag her guts from Great Neck to Far Rockaway, with a vehicle only stopping there because her neck is caught in a tailpipe. May you survive the next great tsunami, only to emerge from the hospital and feel high-tension wires sweeping down and graze the back of your wheelchair. May the FBI completely overhaul its witness protection program, owing to the terrible mistakes it made guarding you. May you be on death row, and your last meal consist of a steak made out of your wife, a pie made out of your children, and a smoothie made from your own blood. 
Now some might say, Rabbi, aren't you being a teeny weeny bit vindictive? I say, stop you! Leave mercy and forgiveness to the Goyim! I'm pissed, goddammit! And Jewish and Jews do not have a kind forgiving God? We have a God who gets mad, stays mad, gets even, and stays vicious even unto the eighth generation? My hatred for you, Mr. Thief, my loathing for you, Mr. Criminal, could move mountains, split atoms, melt polar ice caps, and even turn the New York Knicks into a good team. Yes, you bastards, if there's such a thing as karma, then you are listening to this broadcast while being suspended upside down with boat hooks embedded in your heels, scorpions crawling under your shirt, and your head submerged up to your nose in pig diarrhea. I try not to be bitter, but I fail. And so, yes, congregation, sons of bitches will get another Torah, and will get new locks for the back door, and we will upgrade our alarm system, and we will be reminded once again why Long Island would be a great place to live if it didn't have cockroaches like you breathing the same air. So I leave you with this poem, Mr. Thug, Mr. Felon. There once was a miserable crook who pilfered our holiest book. Deep in hell shall he burn till he begs to return every item this scum ever took. Wah, that felt good. This is Rabbi Saul Solomon of the Torah-deprived Temple Sons of Bitches in Great Neck, New York. On behalf of my dear and aggrieved wife, Miriam Libby, and our 19 angry children, Nehemia, Josiah, Shloimi, Chana, Rivki, Yehuda, Moish, Yechezkel, Boruch, Avigda, Yisroel, Hepsaba, Shaul, Aliza, Shimon, Gedalia, Naftoli, Baby Beryl, and Fred, by my first marriage, I wish a happy and joyous Purim with fun and frolic and delight to all of you, except you. And you know who you are, you vile, accursed son of a bitch! These are the Daves, my friend, the perfect radio blend of comedy, talk, radio, and more. Yes, these are the Daves. More than 80 episodes of Daves Gone By on compact disc for your listening pleasure. Long drive home? Pop in a Dave. In the mood for a funny sketch? Pop in a Dave. All CDs come in jewel cases with full packaging, just $12, new low price. Same free shipping and handling. Add another dollar and I'll autograph the cover. Don't know which episode? Visit davesgoneby.org or email davesgoneby at aol.com and ask for the CD list. These are the Daves, my friend. Makes a great gift to send. Give them a try if you love Daves Gone By. Jimmy, did you go home and write a thousand times I will not disturb the class? Here, Mrs. Bitchfarb. Jimmy, you were playing softball last night. How'd you do it? Easy. I went to Unit Minute Man Press. Unit Minute Man Press? 1315 Broadway in Unit. Great prices. No copy job too big or small. Jimmy? Yes, Mrs. Bitchfarb. Look what I found! Your Minute Man receipt! Uh-oh! 
Here's your change. Oh, my knuckles. Oh, my nipples. Oh, my knuckles. Oh, my nipples. Oh, my knuckles. Oh, my nipples. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By on this 5th of March, 2006. A segment called Dave Remembers. We do this every once in a while when we lose people, usually in the entertainment industry, that I want to take a minute or two to kind of think about and reflect on and recall what they brought to the table so far as their joy and the joy that they gave to us. So it was just going to be about Don Knotts because we lost him last week. He was born July 21st, 1924, and died at the ripe old age of 81 years. Uh, he kind of looked like he was 81 back when he was still in his 60s, but then that was part of his his specialness, I guess. So the segment was just going to be about him, about remembering how cool he was and, and funny, and what an odd character and an unusual character to become a TV star and something of a cult idol. And yet, then within you know hours after his death was reported, we found out that we also lost Darren McGavin who was best known from TV's The Night Stalker and, and had a bunch of other television roles. So, you know, I wasn't that into him. I never saw The Night Stalker. And I know he had a big part on Murphy Brown, recurring part, as Candace Bergen's dad. But I don't think that made quite the impression that his other stuff did. So, you know, wasn't necessarily going to mention it. And then I was listening to the Glenn Jones radio program on Sunday nights on WFMU, one of my favorite stations. And Glenn Jones and his co-host X-Ray Burns, mostly they play music, but uh, at the top of the hour, they also goof on everything from life in New Jersey to whatever they happen to be doing that weekend. They'll talk about stuff in the news as well as the people who pass. And they said, okay, Don Knotts, Darren McGavin, where's the third? Because these things tend to come in threes. And for a little while, they started to try and guess, well, who would be next? What big TV person or celebrity was going to be part of the triptych of death uh, in, in that late February? And go figure. Just a day later, news came that Dennis Weaver passed. He, of course, from both Gunsmoke and Beth Nung, from McLeod, and he also died at 81. Uh, the nice thing is that all three of these actors lived a long time. Darren McGavin died, he was 83. So um, they had that in common. And I also noticed the interesting thing that all three of them had a beloved recurring role that really cemented their uh, relationship to the American public in a certain kind of character. And yet, at the same time, they all have one other thing, one other part, one other role that endeared them and became rather lasting, more than the dozens and dozens of other guest-starring roles and movie roles and things like that that they had. With Don Knotts, yeah, he had the Andy Griffith show. That was the thing that, that made him an American TV icon. And he did Mr. Furley in Three's Company for a bunch of seasons, but by then, that didn't add too much. It was already kind of nice to see him, uh, and, and nice to see that he could still be kind of cute and funny and nervous, but I don't think that so added so much to the legendary status as the incredible Mr. Limpet. Now, there's something about that movie, I guess because we all watched it when we were young, but uh, I, went, I went Googling and 
IMDb searching on that film. And there is, it's not that great a film, it's got that cool animation thing, which is why we also all watched it when we were younger, if you were from my generation. But you rooted for him, and it was one of the first, I think, feature film that he did. And later on, he started doing all those, the reluctant astronauts and, and those kinds of things. But kind of cool that he had that also, apart from Andy Griffith to keep him in our minds and in our hearts. Darren McGavin, same thing. Sure, he did The Night Stalker, he did Murphy Brown. He also did a film with Don Knotts called No Deposit, No Return back in 1976. But what we all really remember him for now was A Christmas Story. And what a terrific film that was. I remember sort of seeing it on cable. Not sort of seeing it on cable, seeing it on cable. And thinking, all right, I'm going to watch it, not because I like Christmas movies, God knows, but because it was Gene Shepard, and I knew he was a radio legend, and I'd seen a TV show that he did, and I realized, okay, this guy's a humorist, let's see what his take on growing up and, and having Christmas with a family is like. And turned out, it's really one of the most marvelous films. I mean, when I first saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe how good it is. Eventually, the public did discover it and realized that now it's become like it's a wonderful life. They've got to show it. And it, it's become iconic in the sense of that kid who gets his tongue stuck to the frozen light pole and the, the, the father unwrapping the leg lamp for Christmas. And the father was Darren McGavin underappreciated in some senses because he's so good playing it very straight. I mean, that film influenced everything from The Wonder Years to um, uh, Malcolm, Malcolm in the Middle. So, hey for, to Darren McGavin for that. And now what about Dennis Weaver? Well, Weaver, he had two big TV shows. I mean, he was iconic apparently doing uh, the Gunsmoke show where he was known for doing Mr. Dillon. I only remember that, not because I used to watch Gunsmoke. It was A, a little before my time, and B, I was not into Westerns at all. Still, still really am not. But because my dad would kind of make fun of my love of Bob Dylan's music. And so whenever I'd play him or talk about him, as I was wont to do when I was obsessed with Bob Dylan in my 20s, was, was you know, dad would be going, Mr. Dylan, and... Yeah, it, was, it wasn't being nasty about it, but I didn't realize that that came from Dennis Weaver doing that character on Gunsmoke. And then, of course, McLeod, which we see all the time now in repeats on um, on the various cable channels. And that's kind of a, a cool show. You know, the cop riding the horse in the middle of New York, which is sort of ridiculous, except for the fact that if you go around Central Park, they do. So... Okay, and he was in Gentle Bane. People don't remember that. He just did TV after TV after TV. And the one other endearing film, again, that's what all these folks have in common. Don Knotts, Darren McGavin had Night Stalker and The Christmas Story. Knotts had uh, Limpet and The Andy Griffith Show. Weaver had Gunsmoke and McLeod. And Duel, how's that for a classic film? The first real feature directed by Steven Spielberg. He'd done a few, gun, uh, a few Columbo episodes and some other stuff, and then they gave him the chance to do a TV movie called Duel, and it was the most simple kind of horror, modern, almost psychological horror film you could think of. Just a man who is being stalked and terrorized by this unseen truck driver, and it is done so well, and it's just 
framed and visualized and cut so brilliantly that not only did it, of course, write Steven Spielberg's ticket to go on and do Sugarland Express and Jaws and all the other things he's done, but uh, they even released the film theatrically 10 years or 12 years later. It was a TV movie, and they brought it to the theaters just because it's so gripping and so well done. And, and Dennis Weaver's very much part of that. He plays the poor guy who's terrorized by this unseen trucker. So, hey to all these three people who could have been just typecast, and yet they all have one other something that uh, that allows us to remember them for something else. I do want to talk a little bit about Knott's, because he was such a special character. Uh, everybody thought, just going back to his obituary, that he would never have been called up for army service, and yet he was in World War II, granted, as a comedian in a show or review that they had called Stars and Gripes, and then... Of course, he developed the nervous character on the Steve Allen show. And that's kind of going to tie into something that will be on Dave's Gone By in a couple of weeks, because I'll be interviewing a fellow named Ben Alba, who's written a book about Steve Allen and how he really pioneered and created the whole Tonight Show format, which not only goes for the Tonight Show now, but has lasted all the way through Jimmy Kimmel and Conan O'Brien and pretty much every other talk show out there. The desk, the band, the talking to the audience, the man on the street, all these things. That was Steve Allen starting that. And one of the other things that Steve did was have a company of comedic players like Bill Dana and Louis Nye, who we just lost a couple of uh, months ago, and Don Knotts, who very naturally came to this nervous character. I think the most famous moment that he had was as a munitions person. And Steve Allen was interviewing him, asking what he did. And he he's basically tested unexploded bombs. That was his job. You know, he'd tap at them, and if they didn't explode, he, he knew they were okay. And his name was something like Wendell K. Freen or Myron K. Josephson, something like that, with with letter K as the middle initial. And Alan asked him, well, what does the K stand for? And Knotts, in his inimitable way, said, Come! <laughs> Again, when I do it, ha-ha, <laughs> minor laugh. Well, he did it. Very, very funny. And it was something he, he built an entire career on. It's kind of interesting. Uh, they said in one of the pieces, I think it was the New York Times, that men who wanted to be leading men and sort of macho and, and lead actors in their shows or movies really wanted him as a sidekick because he made them look more macho and tall and cool just by his being next to them. So he got a lot, a lot of roles. I mean, I don't think he ever hurt for work in his entire career. And, and even just that thought made me think, well, wouldn't that have been interesting to see what would have happened if Dean Martin hadn't paired with Jerry Lewis, but, say, Don Knotts. That would have been a, quite an interesting, delicate delinquent right there. Anyway, um, Andy Griffith and Don Knotts co-starred on Broadway in No Time for Sergeants in 1955, and then uh, Griffith remembered him for those very reasons of Griffith being able to be the... Uh, the folksy lead and gentle and the women all kind of dig him and bring Knotts on to be his foil, the comic foil. And that was the reason I never liked 
uh, Mayberry RFD or the Andy Griffith show. It wasn't my thing. I didn't ever really go for any of the folksy humor shows of that era. Not Petticoat Junction, not even Belly, uh, Beverly Hillbillies. Even though these shows were probably written by some of the same New York Jewish urban writers who were doing Sergeant Bilko and I Dream of Genie and Gilligan's Island and stuff that I did watch. And these shows, most of them were not appreciably better and or worse. They were just there and they were the things I was watching at that time. But the few times that I did tune in to see Andy Griffith, I didn't go into all the, the corn pony characters and I wasn't so much... Uh, watching for Andy Griffith himself, who was an established comedian before that show, and an actor. But it was Don Knotts. That was the character, at least at that stage of my life, that I could identify with, because he was small and nerdy and trying to do the right thing and, and overcompensating for being self-conscious and, and you know, a little, the shakiest gun in the West, as one of his uh, movies would be titled. In fact, I loved reading that his character, Barney Fife, would carry a bullet in his pocket, but not in his gun, because the one time he did shoot his gun, he shot himself in the foot. So, the, the neat thing about that character, and I guess the reason we loved him so much, Barney Fife, was again, Andy kept things going, he was the voice of reason, he was always calm, you know, whenever there was a pretty girl new to town, everybody would be trying to fix him up, but it was Don who was out there trying to just get by, and 80% of the time was completely competent and capable and got the job done, but, and, and then those other 20% were just filled with a self-doubt, and it was comical to see him do it, and yet... We always knew, well, there but for the grace of God, we would be panicky and a little nervous about dealing with criminals or just trying to get by in day-to-day -day life without falling over, tripping, shooting ourselves, or making a fool of ourselves among people we either fear or respect or are attracted to. So, want to say goodbye to all these, these people, to Don Knotts, who gave us good, good laughs. I, wouldn't, I would not call him a comic genius. But he had his moments of brilliance and, and moments of great fun for decades and decades. And he must have been a little different in private life than he was on screen because he was on his third wife by the time of his death. I don't know if they were still married at that point, but uh, you got to figure, you know, twice divorced and, and on to a third, he wasn't this meek, completely desperate little character off the screen. Uh, then there was Darren McGavin. He was as much of a Christmas story as the little boy or the fine actress who played the wife and, and Gene Shepard, who was doing the narration. And then Dennis Weaver. Um, the, the fun thing about him was also that towards the last couple of decades of his life, he was so environmentally conscious. His, um, his house was something called like the Earth Sphere, and he made the whole thing out of old tires and recycled things from uh, junk sales and, and junkyards. In fact, uh, the New York Times quotes Jay Leno making a joke years ago about it, saying, you know, when the garbage man comes to uh, Dennis Weaver's house, how does he know where the garbage begins and the house ends? Which I find kind of funny. And yet, kudos to Dennis Weaver for recognizing so many years ago that... You know, we were on a course for 
some kind of appetite for environmental and world destruction, unless we all recycled a whole hell of a lot more than we do now, and really took care of our plants and our animals and our ozosphere, or whatever you want to call it. Anyway, Dave remembers all of them. I hope you all do, too. And we'll be right back. Eat, eat, use, use, buy, buy. Look at me. I'm the American consumer. And I want to spend my money on stores, restaurants, showrooms, travel agencies, mail order catalogs. Sell me stuff. How do you reach me? Well, I listen to Dave's Gone By. So if you advertise there, you'll certainly have my attention. Davesgoneby.org has all the details. Or email davesgoneby at aol.com for the rate card. I'm listening. Sell me what you got. Welcome back to Dave's Gone By. Thank you to our sponsors, MortgagesRock.com, Performing Arts Insider Magazine, and Hewlett Minuteman Press. Thanks to Rabbi Saul Solomon. I sure hope he has a happier week next week for Purim than he's having now. Thank you to my wonderful wife, Joyce, and thank all of you for listening. Catch a Vintage Dave Thursday nights on DFSX Radio. Listen on the web at davesgoneby.org and listen next Sunday, March 12th, to the 163rd episode of Dave's Gone By. Until then, don't miss your days going by. This is Dave Lefkowitz. I wish, I wish, I wish I were a fish. Good night, Mr. Limpet, wherever you are, and gone by. A little fish in a big pond has plenty of room to swim. But swimming around are big fish already to pounce on him. Back to his little pond, he starts to roll. The little fish spreads his fins and begins to swim back home. That's me, a little fish in a big pond all wrong. That's me, a little fish where a little fish don't belong. A little man in a big town gets butterflies in his dome. I'm ready to spread my fin and begin to swim back home to the little pond where the little fish and the little man 